Well, thank you, Pastor, for those kind words, and thank you, everyone here, for the opportunity to share from God's Word uh, uh, with you today. I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Acts, the book of Acts chapter 10 and 11, Acts chapter 10 and 11. Uh, Your pastor mentioned that he and I have had an opportunity to meet on a number of occasions, and we have on a fairly consistent basis for the past year. And uh, it's a joy to uh, have time with him and to share with him and he with me and to be sharpened uh, as pastors in the ministry of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. I understand that your pastor spoke to you last Sunday on the command in God's word to go. Go and make disciples of all nations. And so this morning I'd like to kind of pick up on that theme here in Acts chapter 10 and talk not so much about the command to go, but something that exists in every single one of our hearts when it comes to this command to go, and that is there is a reluctance in our heart to go. To go and make disciples of all nations. Uh, If you have been a Christian for uh, a significant period of time, you are probably familiar with Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11. It is the story, it's it's a conversion story. It's the story of a Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius who was converted and became a devout follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke records that story for us here. It's interesting, as you read the book of Acts, there are a number of conversion stories. In Acts chapter 9, you have the conversion of Saul, who becomes the great apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 8, you have the conversion of an Ethiopian who was coming from Africa to Jerusalem and then Jerusalem on his way back home, and he is converted also. So you have a number of these different conversion stories, and as you read these stories, it's very, very possible for you to read them on the surface and to think it's only about the conversion of a number of people. It's the conversion of Cornelius here in Acts chapter 10. But here's what I want you to understand. Woven into... The conversion story, embedded in the conversion story, is another story that's being told. That Luke doesn't want us to just know that a man named Cornelius became a follower of Jesus. Luke wants us to understand some significant details to the story because there's something else that Luke is communicating to us. And so here's what I want to do this morning. In order for us to uncover and discover what that interwoven, detailed story is that Luke really wants us to know, we're going to do two things. First of all, I I want us to look at the passage. So our first point this morning will be, what does this story tell us? We're just going to look at the story. I just want to make some observations, review the story for you. It's lengthy, and so I will try to give you a synopsis of that story. Then I want us to learn from the story. So the next question will be, what does this story teach us? So we're looking now at what does this story tell us? And in chapter 10, verse 1, it mentions the town of Caesarea. And here's what I want you to see. The first thing is that Cornelius, this Roman centurion, received a vision from the Lord, from an angel of the Lord, and therefore he sent for Peter the apostle. Cornelius receives a vision and sends for Peter. It says, at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion. Caesarea, it was the administrative capital of Judea at this point in time. The Romans had turned it into a massive port. Actually, Herod the Great had had constructed it as as a massive port, and the Romans had taken it over. Herod had built it in honor of Augustus Caesar, hence the name Caesarea. You can still go to this city today. Well, it's simply an archaeological dig today, but the ruins are there. And we know that there was a large Roman garrison that was stationed there. So troops from Rome would land here, and then they would spread throughout Judea in order to bring peace and, well, in some cases, war to various parts of that world. It is in Caesarea where you can find an actual replica. It was where the original was found, but it's a replica of a stone. The real stone is in a museum now, but the stone mentions the name Pontius Pilate. And this was discovered about 60 years ago. And up until that time, there was a lot of question as to whether Pontius Pilate actually lived. And then they discovered a stone with his name on it, thus confirming again the historical accuracy of the Bible. 
The man's name is Cornelius. It says he's a centurion. In our language today, we would call him a captain or a commander of various troops. What I want you to see is that Luke isn't so concerned about the fact that he's a Roman or that he's a Gentile or that he is a man in a top position within the Roman army. What Luke wants us to know is something about the character of this man. Verse 2, he and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. And if you skip right over to verse 22, you will see that the men who Cornelius sent to get Peter said to Peter that uh, Cornelius was respected by all the Jewish people. So here's a Gentile who's a Roman. This is the commanding man of of an occupying army. And he is respected by the Jewish people. He is a God-fearer, what the Bible calls a God-fearer. In other words, even though he's a Roman, he has come to the point where he believes that the God of Israel is the one true and living God. He hasn't become a full convert to Judaism, but he would be one of those individuals who would sit at the back of the synagogue when the Jews would meet to worship because he was an uncircumcised man, but he wanted to learn about the living God. This helps us immediately to understand, and and the immediate readers of of the book of Acts would have understood this great chasm that existed in the ancient world between Jew and Gentile, especially between Jews and Romans. These are the occupiers of their land. Verse 3 has a vision. And in this vision, the angel tells him that there's a man in Joppa named Peter, Simon, And uh, the angel reveals to him that he should send for Simon to come. Now, it's interesting that the word Joppa is used here, or the name Joppa is used here, because Joppa is south of this city along the the Mediterranean coast. And if you know your Bible at all, you know that Joppa is very famous for a reluctant prophet by the name of Jonah, because it was here in Joppa that Jonah, centuries before, decided that he, was, he didn't want to go to Nineveh to preach the word of truth. And so he got on a boat and set out into the Mediterranean in order to avoid God's call, the reluctant prophet. And so you see there's a connection here immediately because this sets the stage for what happens next. In verses 7 and 8, Cornelius sends three of his men down to Joppa. And that takes us to the second thing I want you to see today, and that is that Peter in Joppa receives a vision And he ultimately goes to Cornelius. Verse 9 tells us it was about noon on the following day. And as this party that was coming from Cornelius was at the outskirts of the city of Joppa, Peter had gone up onto the home, onto the roof of the home. Keep in mind that these were flat roofs of homes in this ancient world. Uh, On this flat roof of the home of Simon the Tanner where Peter was staying, he's up there, he's praying, the Bible tells us. He gets hungry while he's praying, and then he falls into a trance. And when he falls into this trance, something happens. A vision happens, and he sees like a video screen behind me here that you can see here. This video screen, this sheet is lowered down, and it's like him being in a cineplex theater all of his own. And he sees the video. And the video is like a National Geographic video with all these animals on it. And they're the animals that are actually listed in Leviticus chapter 11, which are animals that Jews are prohibited from eating. There's the video. He watches the video, and then he hears a voice. And the voice says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And what does Peter do immediately? Not so, Lord. You see, Peter is the reluctant apostle, just like Jonah was the reluctant prophet. He didn't want to eat this. And so God pushed the rewind button on the video and showed it to him a second time. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. No way, Lord. Nothing unclean has ever touched my lips. God pushes the rewind bit video, <laughs> the rewind button the third time, shows him the video again. God was communicating to him. Now, notice this happened three times. A lot of things happened to Peter in terms of three times, remember? Why three times? Because there was something dense in Peter's mind. Peter was confused. Look at verse 17. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision. Wondering. What, what, what does this mean? Verse 19. While Peter was still thinking about the vision. 
He's confused. He, he's trying to figure out what it all means. He, he knows that the animals are the animals there in the, from Leviticus chapter 11. The Jews are prohibited from eating. But he's probably also remembering what Jesus said in Mark 7. That when he declared all foods, all meat, all animals clean. And so he's trying in his mind to, to reconcile what is actually happening here. And then, of course, these men arrive. And when the men arrive, they want to find out where Peter is. They make their way to the home of Simon the Tanner. And we read in verse 19, while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. Verse 20, get up, go downstairs, do not hesitate, keyword, hesitate. Don't be reluctant, Peter. Don't hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Notice this is the Holy Spirit speaking to him. And what I want you to see and understand, we'll, we'll jump ahead to another verse in just a moment, is that the Holy Spirit, when he speaks to Peter at this point in time, the Holy Spirit takes this distinction between unclean food and clean food, and the Holy Spirit applies that to people. To people. Why do I say that? Well, look at verse 28, when Peter finally arrives in Caesarea and goes into Cornelius' home, he said, you are well aware that it is against the, our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile. That's in essence what one of the aspects of these food laws was all about. It was to keep the Jews separate from the Gentiles so they wouldn't intermingle with them. Peter says, that's what our law tells us. But, he says, middle of verse 28, last line of verse 28, God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So the Spirit was making a distinction then. He was, he was helping him to understand that this was all about people and not about food. So, notice again, verse 20 says, don't hesitate. In other words, the Holy Spirit was speaking to Peter. The Holy Spirit desired to change the thinking of the Apostle Peter. We know Proverbs 23, verse 7, which says, As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. What you think reveals who you, you really are. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So the Holy Spirit now wants to change the heart of this apostle. And here we see a wonderful truth that the, of the, the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit dovetails from Peter's life to Cornelius' life to bring them both together. Cornelius gets a vision from God. Peter gets a vision from God. The Holy Spirit is at work and so just as centuries ago, this reluctant prophet, prophet named Judah avoided the call of God, so this reluctant apostle wants to avoid what the Holy Spirit is saying to him. He does not want to go where he is not predisposed to go. It isn't just Cornelius who needs to be converted. There's a conversion that needs to happen in the heart of the apostle Peter. Which takes us to the next thing I want you to see, and that is that Peter, Peter then preaches the gospel to Cornelius and his household, and that begins at verse 24. So Peter arrives with this party of men who've come from Caesarea to take him back there, and uh, Peter arrives at Cornelius' home, and uh, when he does, you read, we see here Cornelius' response. Remember, this is a devout, God-fearing man, and verse 24 tells us that when Peter enters into his home, Cornelius falls at Peter's feet in reverence, in reverence. Peter tells him immediately in verse 25, get up. He says, I am just a man like yourself. I am just a man like yourself. Now, what just happened here in verses 24, this, this immediate interaction that happens between Cornelius and Peter is important because remember, in the Jewish mind of the ancient world in the days of the apostles, Gentiles are nothing more than dogs. They are equal to dogs. Dogs are at the feet of a human being. This man falls on, his, at the, falls on the ground at the feet 
of Peter, and Peter immediately gets the connection. I'm a man just like you are. You need to get up. When Peter said that, when that man, when Cornelius bowed down to him, and when Peter told him to get up, Peter immediately repudiated the extreme attitudes that existed in the ancient world. And friends, they're not all that ancient. They're contemporary too. They're contemporary too. In all kinds of settings. You see, we have two extremes when it comes to human beings of different races or classes or nations. On the one hand, we will, we will exalt a certain group of people, almost giving them the status of a god, deifying them. On the other hand, we will reject other people, putting them down, almost demonizing them or dehumanizing them. And when Peter spoke these words, he was basically saying, I reject this. You see, so many human beings of certain groups of people think we are more godlike than other people, and you are more dog-like than we are. Verse 27, look at what happens. Verse 27, talking with them, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him, but God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. <laughs> a little stretch on the truth there, Peter, because he certainly had objected to God initially, but it is true that when the men arrived, he raised no objection at that point. And then he asks Cornelius, may I ask why you sent for me. And so Cornelius speaks to him, tells him about the vision that he saw, and says, we are here in the presence of God. This is a wonderful line at the end of verse 33. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. So Peter now begins his message. And here's what I want you to see. As he preaches the gospel, he prefaces the gospel with an important truth. It starts in verse 34. Then Peter began to speak. Here's the important truth. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. Now that's the preface to the sharing of the gospel because the next line says in verse 36, this is the message God sent. This is the gospel message. So he prefaces the gospel with this truth. That God's attitude toward people, all people, is not based on any kind of external criteria whatsoever. God's attitude toward people has nothing to do with how people appear, or the color of their skin, or their nationality, or their social status, or economic status. It has nothing to do whether they are common people or royal people. Here, the Apostle Peter affirms a truth that we, as the church of Jesus, must affirm that there is no racial barrier to salvation. Now, friends, it is appropriate at times to say amen when a man preaches God's word. You just missed the appropriate moment. <laughs> there is no racial barrier to salvation. Now, Peter preaches the gospel. I want you to notice the following things here. In, I'm just giving you a summary here. In verse 37, he says, You know what happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. An incredible verse. And went about doing good, healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. Notice what Peter does. When he preaches the gospel of Christ, he roots it in a historical fact. He says, you know what happened in Judea and Galilee. News had reached them in Caesarea about Jesus. We believe in a historical gospel. That is, we believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is rooted in several historical facts. This isn't some made-up, pie-in-the-sky dream that we believe in. This isn't some, something that came about some, from a group of 12 men who were, who, were, who were going through some hallucinations, religious hallucinations in their mind, and they concocted it all by themselves. 
The gospel is rooted in historical truth. You know Jesus walked this earth. The first thing he talks to them about is the life and the ministry of, of Jesus. And this news had spread all throughout the world, the known world, the Israelite world, at that period of time. Then, beginning at verse 39, he mentions that Jesus Christ was put to death. They killed him by hanging him on a tree. Verse 40, he mentions the resurrection of Jesus. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen. By us, who ate and drank with him. We didn't dream this up. We were actually there. We ate and drank with him. He is talking about these infallible proofs that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Now, here's what we need to understand. These events, the life and the ministry of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, these events constitute the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. That God has sent his son into the world. Peter says we're witnesses of this. Verse 42 says we've been commanded to preach this. Here's something else I want you to see. In this brief synopsis that Luke gives us of Peter's gospel message, I want you to notice verse 36. What does Peter say about Jesus? He is Lord of all, it says. All. He is Lord over all. All, not just over the Jews, he is Lord over all. I want you to see the universality of what Peter is saying here. In verse 42, it says um, that this message was preached to the people, to the people, not just to the Jews, but to Jew and Gentile alike. Verse 42, Peter says that Jesus will be the judge of the living and the dead, not just living and dead Jews but the living and the dead of all humanity. And then in verse 43, he gives this promise, everyone, not just one class of people, but everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will receive the forgiveness of sins. Now notice what happens next. Cornelius receives the gospel that has been preached to him by Peter, and that starts at verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Here's what I want you to see. In the reception of the gospel, Peter had no control over what happened. Is Peter still speaking? I mean, what a way to interrupt a pastor's sermon. He's still speaking. And the Holy Spirit comes down. And these people begin immediately to speak in languages they have never learned. Peter has no control over what happens here. The significance of the speaking in tongues here is that God is reconciling not just individuals to himself, but in the church of Christ, God is reconciling people to each other. A divided humanity of Jew and Gentile who speak different languages is being united together. God is doing something incredible here. This is, is the beginning of Gentiles coming into the church. And we know, if we understand our Bibles at all, that the issue of language has exacerbated the division of humanity. We are divided because of, our, of other things, but language exasperates that division more than anything else. Now, all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit has come on these people, and what does Peter say? Peter gets it. He finally gets it. And he says in verse 47, Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And no doubt Peter's thinking in his mind of what happened in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit came upon the Jews. And the same thing happened at Pentecost. They spoke in languages they had never learned. The same thing is happening here in Acts chapter 10. Here's the sign that God has worked in grace in their hearts. And Peter says, how can we forbid baptism to them? How can the sign of true conversion, which is baptism, how can this sign be denied to those who have already received the reality that is signified? Now, 
That's not the end of the story. Because as you go now, the story flows into chapter 11. And what happens in chapter 11 is that the news of what happened in Cornelius' house spreads. And it gets all the way back to Jerusalem. And there are believers in Jerusalem who are disturbed at what has happened. So now, in chapter 11, the final thing in the story I want you to see before we get into what does this passage teach us, the final thing is that Peter had to justify his actions of entering into Cornelius' home and preaching the gospel there. Look at verse 1, chapter 11. The apostles and brothers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers, what did they do? They criticized him. They criticized him. And they said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and you ate with them? Do you see the division? Do you see the bigotry? Do you see the discrimination? Do you see the racism? It's all here. And it's from brothers in the church. The response of the church is that the church is disturbed and they criticize Peter for what he did. Peter, frankly, didn't do anything. God did it. God gave him a vision. God sent him there. God came down and saved them. And so Peter explains this and, and he, he talks about this in verses 5 through 10. And he, verse 5, he says, yeah, God, God, God gave me a vision. He did it three times. In essence, Peter is saying, I was just like you before God gave me a vision. I was just like you. I had these same attitudes. I had these same prejudices. I had these same fears in my heart toward other people that you have. But God gave me a vision. Then in verse 12, he says, God commanded me to go. The Spirit said, go with these men. Then in verses 13 through 14, he reiterates what happened to Cornelius before Peter received his vision, that, that God had prepared Cornelius' heart, that he was a devout, God-fearing, praying man who was respected by the Jewish people who had seen an angel in a vision, and the angel had spoke to him and told him, call for Simon, who is at the home of Simon the Tanner. Bring him back here. He will tell you about salvation. And then he mentions that God acted in salvation, beginning at verse 15. He says, as I was speaking, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning at Pentecost. Then I remembered what the Lord had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift as he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus, who was I to think that I could oppose God? And the argument ended because the argument was irrefutable. And it says in verse 18, when they heard this, they had no further objections. And they praised God. The argumentation ceased and the worship began because it says, So then God has even granted the Gentiles repentance unto life. Now I think as I have rehashed this story for you today... As I've tried to give you a synopsis and make a few observations, I think already you are seeing through the story itself that God has woven into, embedded into the story of Cornelius' conversion, another story. He's embedded some truth in here that the church of Christ today, my church in Hamilton, your church here in Georgetown, that we need to wrestle with and come to terms with. What does this story actually teach us? I mean, why would Luke actually record this for us? And what are these details that are interwoven in the story? What does God want us to learn? Number one, number one, this story gives us a picture of us. It gives us a picture of us. Friends, Peter is us. He was reluctant, he was hesitant, he was comfortable in his Jewishness, he was prejudiced toward others who were not Jews, he was ethnocentric in how he viewed life and other people, 
He was fearful of what mingling with other people would actually do to him. Our communities have changed over the course of the last 40 to 50 years in Canada. We have seen a radical change in the composition of our cities and communities and the changes which were prevalent 30 to 40 years ago in major centers like Toronto are now spilling over into the surrounding areas and we are experiencing exactly what people in the city experienced 40 years ago. You see, when I think of my neighbors, when I was a little boy growing up in Toronto, grew up at Dufferin and Rogers Road, if any of you know where that is, and then I moved out to Scarborough, which we call Scarberia. When I lived there, my neighbors across the street and next door to me were people who were physically close, and they were culturally close. Culturally close. I can remember my grandmother when I was a little boy being very worried about the young black girl, the only black girl who lived on our street. And I was playing with her and she was all worried about that. I can remember being, her being upset about the Italian neighbors that were coming into our community. But when I grew up in Scar Scarborough, for the most part, everyone was physically close and culturally distant. But our communities have changed. The immigration wave that has come upon our nation has, has radically altered everything. So now we have, we have neighbors in our Jerusalem. You see, Jerusalem is supposed to all be the same. Samaria is supposed to be different. But our Jerusalems now look like Samaria because you and I have neighbors who are physically close, but they are culturally distant to us. It's another world. And yet they're in our Jerusalem. And God says to us, go. And we are reluctant to go. When I began pastoring Morningstar Christian Fellowship a number of years back in January of 1990, I had a deacon and his wife say to me in the church at that time, because I started to talk to our church about the reality that surrounded us as a church and how we needed to really be a church that would not only just say hello to people, of different cultures and races when they came in, but embraced them and loved them with the love of the Lord Jesus. And I remember this deacon and his wife saying, saying to me, if we open up our doors to everybody, the white people will no longer come. Now friends, that is a leader in a fellowship Baptist church that proclaims to believe the gospel. That is an, that is an affront to the gospel of Christ. We are, we, we are so reluctant to allow the Holy Spirit to push us out of our comfort zones. That's exactly what the Holy Spirit was doing to Peter. Listen, to obey the command to go, you also have to overcome the reluctance that is within your own heart. This story is a picture of us. Number two. This story discloses to us important truth about the Holy Spirit. Now, we don't have time today, but if we went through all of chapter 10 and chapter 11, you would discover there are at least 10 references to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is all through chapters 10 and 11. But look at chapter 10, verse 20. Chapter 10, verse, 20, verse 19 and 20. The Spirit said to him, Simon, these men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I, the Holy Spirit, have sent them. I have sent them. Look now at chapter 11, verse 12. Here's Peter before the leaders of the Jerusalem church. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going, there's the word go again, about going with them. Don't hesitate. Here's the truth about the Holy Spirit that we need to understand. It is a truth that the church of Christ may not realize, but the Holy Spirit is on the move. He is on the move in our world. And Peter goes through those facts again in chapter 11. God gave a vision to Peter. God gave the command to Peter. The Spirit prepared Cornelius' heart, and the Spirit acted by pouring out salvation upon Cornelius and all who were in Cornelius' household. 
Peter had no control over what happened. The Holy Spirit was on the move. And we see here, as I mentioned earlier, the dovetailing of the work of the Spirit in Cornelius' heart and his household in getting him ready, and in Peter's heart in getting him ready to be willing to go to share the gospel with him. This is what Luke wants us to see. I want to take you back in time, almost 50 years ago, to the summer of 1972, a pastor's wife by the name of Mary Lean. Mary Lean. Her husband, Gordon, was the pastor of Boston Baptist Church, a fellowship Baptist church just south of Brantford. You may know of this church. Mary Lean, before the summer of 72, had gone to a pastor's wives retreat at Muskoka Baptist Conference at that time, now known as Muskoka Bible Center. When Mary Lean was there, the speaker um, to the pastor's wives spoke about how God had worked in her heart to, to, to deal with the prejudices that she had in her heart. And, and as she was speaking, my aunt immediately knew what her prejudice was. She had, this is 1972. We're going back in time. This is shortly after Woodstock happened, okay? And, 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 and Mary Lean immediately thought of all those hippies with the long hair and how prejudiced she was against them. And God broke her on that retreat. And for the next couple of weeks, she prayed about this prejudice in her heart. And two weeks later, a young man showed up, showed up at her door. It was her nephew. And he arrived because Mary's husband, Gordon, had promised him that he could work uh, in a farm down there in the summer and have a summer job. The nephew had long, long hair. Tattered jeans, a Molson t-shirt on. He was a hippie. Mary's nephew is me. When I arrived at her door, she knew immediately why God had spoken to her. All of her prejudices and attitudes and fears and unbelief confronted her again. And she knew that God had brought a sinner like Cornelius into her house. The Holy Spirit wants to remove these prejudices and attitudes and fears that we have. He wants to remove them and he wants to change us. We think at times that the reason why people are so resistant to the gospel is, well, they are resistant because they're sinners. And that's certainly true. I'm not denying that fact at all. But we often think that the reason why they're the biggest prob prob problem is their hearts. And I would suggest to you it's not just that. The biggest hindrance in the church to the spreading of the gospel and the reception of the gospel lies within the church itself. The problem is with us. It has been interesting as a pastor, and I know your pastor and your leadership have gone through this over the past 19 months. It has been interesting to see what has happened in the past 19 months as all of us have wrestled through with COVID and all of the stuff that has been going on in our hearts during this time. And we, the, the frustrations that we feel, the constrictions, the restrictions, the, the messaging that's out there in the world and, and how it is affecting us. And I'm not thinking not just so much about what is being said or what's happening in our world, I'm thinking about our reactions, the reactions of our heart to, to everything that has been going, the anger that has come out in Christians' hearts, the attitudes that have been revealed, the, the pride that we have, the idolatry we have about our personal freedoms. God in COVID has been revealing these things to us. There is more division among pastors and churches today than there was before COVID. All of these pressures have brought out, as it were, the worst in us. And I have to ask, is God the Holy Spirit doing something through COVID? Is he preparing us? Is he purging us? Is he purifying us to get us ready for a great harvest? Oh God, make it so. Make it so. The Holy Spirit upset Peter. Now that throws out of your mind all of the views we have about the fullness of the Holy Spirit and how it's just happy, happy, happy if we're walking in the Spirit. No, it's not. The Holy Spirit upset Peter. 
And the Holy Spirit will upset the Canadian church to reach the world. And we have an example of it here, and we have an example of it in Acts 8. Because the church was comfortable in Jerusalem, and the church wasn't obeying the command to go, and God had to send a persecution upon the church to kick them out of Jerusalem to get into Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. The Holy Spirit is on the move. Friends, I think my time has gone. Will you let me say three more things before, I, before I, step, I step down? Number three, this story also reveals the nature of the church. The nature of the church. Now, we might read this and say, well, what, what is this story? What, what, what does the church have to do with going, obeying the command to go? Well, the book of Acts, keep this in mind, the book of Acts actually gives us a historical record. It reveals what the apostles did when they obeyed the command to go. And what did they do? They went everywhere. And what did they do when they went everywhere? They shared the gospel. And what did they do when they shared the gospel? They gathered converts together and they formed local churches. They established churches That's what it's all about. You see, when people are baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they're also baptized into the Christian community, into the church. You see, what the church is like has everything to do about whether we fulfill the command to go. Because Paul talks about the church in Ephesians chapter 2, and he talks about this divided humanity and how the cross, Christ himself, has broken down this dividing wall of hostility that existed not just between us and God, but between people. That the cross breaks it all down, and out of the two men, that is Jew and Gentile, he has formed one New man are the words that Paul uses. One new man. That's the church. One new man in whom is seen the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you realize what the ramifications were that Cornelius had now come into the church? Do you realize what the ramifications were when all throughout the the Jewish world at that time, which was predominantly a Roman world, but in all these areas where the apostles went, where Jews became believers and Gentiles became believers too, and they were added to the church, where where Gentiles were now added into this Jewish church. Do you realize the ramifications of what happened? Do you understand how this transformed their social and fellowship life? Do you know how many letters in the New Testament are actually written about these issues that the church would face when people who were different were suddenly coming into the church? I mean, this would have really upset their church potluck dinner. When the Gentile family brought roasted pork. And this really upset the, the parents of the church when, 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 when that Gentile boy wants to date my Jewish daughter. You see, this is the kind of thing that happened. Fellowship, get this friends, fellowship is costly. Most of what we do as socializing in the church is just simply that. It's just socializing. We call it fellowship. But our fellowship is in the gospel. Our fellowship is in the spirit. And the church of Jesus Christ is the new creation, the one new man of a reconciled humanity. And this divided humanity that surrounds us needs to see a reconciled humanity. And the greatest scandal in the church today is our disunity. One new man, in and of itself, is a powerful witness to the gospel of Jesus. Brothers and sisters in Christ, if you will allow me to say this as a visiting speaker here today. Any actions on our part that contribute to disunity and disharmony in the church, especially the act of discriminating against people who are different than us, is a denial of a fundamental truth and doctrine of God's word, the unity of the church. It is just as serious as denying the deity of Jesus Christ. Number four. This story exposes for us a prevailing error 
in our day, a prevailing era. And it's, it's, it's not a contemporary era. It was in error. It was in the ancient world as well. You hear it every day. I hear it as we seek to share Christ. It doesn't really matter what a person believes. It doesn't really matter what religion a person has because there is light in all religions. And what really matters is a person's sincerity, not the God who they pray to. You heard that before? (laughs) If you haven't, then you are deaf. It is everywhere. It is everywhere. And people will often look to this story in the book of Acts. Well, Cornelius, he's a God-fearing man, and and God accepted him. God, God liked him. His prayers went up as a memorial offering before God. So, so, so God was on his side too. But that misses the intent of the story. You see, God is indifferent to nations. And indifferent to the external appearances of people. Their skin color. But he is not indifferent to religion. And what people believe. And just because Cornelius was a God-fearing, praying man, does not mean that he was immediately justified and saved. Think about this. If as a Roman, his pagan convictions, his belief in the Roman gods, had been sufficient, then why did he become a God-fearer and go to the synagogue and seek out the Jews to learn about the one true and living God? And if being a part of the synagogue as a God-fearer and learning about the one true and living God, if that was sufficient enough, then why did God say to him, you need to send for this man named Peter in Joppa and get him up here to tell you how to be saved? You understand what I'm saying? He needed to hear the message of the gospel from the apostle Peter. He needed to repent and to believe. And it was only when he did that the Holy Spirit came down. He was saved, forgiven, and he received the Holy Spirit. Friends, the words of the Apostle Peter in Acts 4 are still true today. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There is no other name. And the weight of this truth alone should remove all reluctance from our hearts to take the gospel to other people. And finally, number five, this story underscores the power of God in the gospel. We know that Paul's words are true. That there is a power in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone, everyone who believes. God is sovereign in his saving acts. He arranges things. He brings people across each other's paths in order that the gospel might be shared. He works in people's hearts ahead of time, preparing them. He prepares people to receive the gospel. He prepares you and I to bring the gospel to them. In John chapter 4, Jesus said these words. These are words that you are familiar with. He said, said, I tell you, open your eyes. Look at the fields. Remember his next line? They are ripe for harvest. Open your eyes. Look on the fields. They're ripe for for harvest. Where was Jesus when he said those words? He was in Samaria. He had just spoken to the Samaritan woman. And the Samaritan woman had then gone and told others about Jesus. And so many of them believed it was in Samaria. What was the Jewish attitude towards Samaritans? In Luke chapter 9, the disciples had gone with Jesus into a Samaritan village. And the people in that city rejected him. And do you remember what the disciples said? James and John spoke up and said, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven on these people? Now there you have the mindset of the disciples of the Lord Jesus. Around 1986-97, an African came to our church in Toronto from the Sudan. His name was Salah. 
He was a devout Muslim. And when he came to our church and I began to question him and ask him why he'd come, I was skeptical as to why he was there. And I thought that he would be the last person to become a believer. Several months later, he came again to our church. And at the back of the church, while I was preaching, he collapsed to the floor in the back pew. Some people gathered around him immediately, thinking that something medical had happened to him, some health issue, but they realized that he was in anguish, but it was not physical pain. When I was preaching, the same thing happened that we have here in Acts chapter 10. The Holy Spirit came down. They gathered around him and formed a circle, and they all prayed in a silent way. And out of the anguish of his heart, he rose up off the floor and told me and everyone there that he had had a dream of a Muslim imam who was coming to him every night and saying, Salah, come back to Islam. Come back to Islam. And this dream had troubled him. But that morning when I was preaching from the book of Galatians, something happened in his heart. And the sheer weight of it all caused him to collapse physically onto the floor. But he rose from that floor, a follower, believer, and lover of the Lord Jesus Christ. Open your eyes. Look on the fields. They're ripe. There are many like Cornelius, prepared by the Spirit of God, and they're just waiting for you to go to them and tell them about the Lord Jesus. So I urge you, brothers and sisters in the Lord, to trust in the God of the gospel. I urge you today, I I implore you today to ask the Lord to root out of your heart whatever it is that is there that causes you to be reluctant, that, that builds up a prejudice in your heart toward others. I ask you to take that reluctance and and that fear and the prejudices that, that the Spirit of God identifies in your heart today and to take those to the cross and then to embrace everyone who does not know Christ. Recognizing, loving them with the love of the Lord Jesus. Recognizing this, that, that God is on the move and you trust Him that He will be on the move in your life too and ask Him to bring a Cornelius across your path, a Cornelius into your life. And may God give you all the joy that you will experience when you are free of those prejudices and fears and joy as you experience fruitfulness in seeing people like Cornelius come to the Lord Jesus Christ. May God the Holy Spirit make it so in all of our hearts. Amen. Thank you.